An opportunity to speak in front of an audience, whether that audience is three people or 300 people, is an opportunity to demonstrate to a potential customer or a client your business and your services. We've discussed public speaking before, and today we're discussing it in a different context, in the context of communication, because it is one of the most significant barriers that many business women and men encounter. Welcome to episode 82 of This Shit Works. I'm your host, Julie Brown, and today I am joined by Brendan Kumarasamy, founder and president of MasterTalk, to discuss how becoming a top 1% communicator in your industry will change just about everything in your career. This episode is sponsored by Nickerson, a full-service branding, marketing, PR, and communications agency with team members in Boston, Los Angeles, Miami, and New York City. Visit them at NickersonCOS.com. Welcome to This Shit Works, your weekly no-nonsense guide to networking your way to more friends, more adventures, and way more success with your host, Julie Brown. Here we go. Would it surprise you to know that Warren Buffett had a terrible fear of speaking in public? He did. And he's not alone. Many other renowned speakers, leaders, and entertainers have feared speaking or performing in front of huge crowds and overcome it. So what about us? How can we overcome the fear of public speaking or just polish our communication skills? What can we do to achieve an impactful speech or conversation? To be top communicators? How can we learn from others in order to do so? Lucky for us, Brendan Kumarasamy is here to share his knowledge, drop some tooth bombs, and if we are lucky, perhaps perform an impromptu karaoke song. Wow. Look at your face, is priceless. <laughs> <laughs> Brendan, welcome to the podcast for the listeners. Um, in researching Brendan, I discovered that he not only speaks three languages, but he can karaoke in eight languages. Brendan, what's your favorite karaoke song? Oh, wow. What a fantastic way to start this interview. Today. You're very <laughs> talented. Uh, yeah, great, great question. Mm, that's a tough one. I think for me, it's probably something along the lines of Sean Paul because it just makes people laugh when I start rapping in Sean Paul. Can you do it as fast as he does, though? That, that That's quite a feat if you can. It, enough to convince the people in a dark room on a Thursday night that I can. That, let's put it that way. And you know what's super fun on a side note is this is an exercise people should try is listen to the song and then type lyrics and compare the two and it'll blow your mind. You're like, wait, he, did he actually say banana? It's just different. Okay. People who know me, and you, I think it's in my title on LinkedIn, on my profile, I love reggae music. I listen to reggae music almost every day. If I'm in my car and I'm not listening to a gruesome true crime podcast, I am listening to reggae music. It's complete ends of the spectrum. I'm like, oh, this was a really bad episode. Must listen to some really fun reggae. <laughs> Okay. All right. Now we're off the rails. Now we're off the rails. Uh, okay. So you help people, executives, business people, career people become top 1% communicators in their industry. What, what does that even mean? What does top 1% mean? Great question. I'm glad I have this prepared. So there's three key elements to a top 1% communicator in the industry. And the way I define that, by the way, just for the audience, is let's say you're an accountant if we put you in a room with 99 other accountants, that it's very obvious that you're the number one communicator in that group. So it's not number 1% in the world, it's within your industry, which is what okay. people want. 
So let's say we go with that definition. There's three key areas to being a top 1% communicator. Number one is a sense of clear direction. So many of us have goals with our businesses, our life, our career, our health, Julie, but very few of us have communication goals. And if we do have communication goals, they're generally very vague. Things like, oh, I want to start a podcast. I want to speak on a stage. So when we have vague goals, we get vague results. So how do we create specific, tangible communication goals? And the, the tactic on this really quickly is you pick three speakers that you really admire. They could be thought leaders. They could be comedians, politicians, pick your troops. And then write down what is one of strength and one weakness that they have as communicators and spend some time watching their keynotes from that angle. So not from the angle of, oh, let's see how they speak, but rather go, how are they actually communicating their message? And that will give you the focus you need to succeed. That's number one. Okay. Number two is technique. So technique is quite simply someone who has mastered every single piece of communication technique. Filler words, are you saying ums and ahs? How is your vocal tone variation? Are you able to go high when you need to and low when you need to? Pacing, how quickly do you speak and do you pause and slow down at moments that really matter? Are you mastering pace, et cetera? So when somebody's obsessed about all this from the smiling to the pausing, this is when someone has masterful technique. The third piece, let me just repeat what I said so far. Direction is the first one, Mm -hmm. clear communication goals. Number two is perfect technique. And number three is what I call identity, public speaking identity. Someone who has a clear sense of purpose and what they're doing from a communication perspective. The best example I can give on this is Tony Robbins. You know, I went to a couple of his seminars this year. And what I find the most fascinating about Tony that not really people think about is that the guy's 62 years old. He has hundreds of millions of dollars in his bank account, yet he is still speaking with the same amount of energy and enthusiasm that he did when he started his career 45 years ago, the age of 17, and he's staying up until 3 a.m. on a day to give a speech. Like, Why is this guy even bothering? Mm -hmm. Why is he spending his time that he doesn't need to work anymore? And that's the key. If you master all three, you're a top 1% communicator. So what is Tony Robbins staying up till three o'clock in the morning on a a day he's giving a speech? What does that have to do with his identity? Are you saying that he is an overworker? Like that's his identity? How does that, I'm I'm trying to draw the correlation. No, no, no. I love, I love the hard questions. Keep them coming. Those, Those are the podcasts I love. So in the context of Tony, that would be, what is his mission as a human being? So his mission is to end human suffering in a nutshell. That's who Tony is. That's what he aspires to be. So even with all of the financial success he has, because of his identity as a human being, he cannot stop speaking, even if his speaking does not return enough money for it to be worth it for him. Because at this point, his hourly rate is probably, we could easily tally it at a million dollars, $5 million, $10 million plus, but he doesn't need that money. Yeah. Right? So it's not about the hourly rate anymore. It's about the number of people he's serving. What type of impact do you want to make? And the other piece is if you're a thought leader, an entrepreneur, are you trying to build just a business or a movement? And the reason I mention this, and this is the most important thing, Julie, you don't need this if you want to be a great communicator. You don't need this if you want to be an exceptional communicator, but you need this if you want to be a top 1% communicator. Okay. That's the key difference. Okay. All right. I understand. So you have a super popular YouTube channel called Master Talk. 
I've watched a shit ton of the videos. So now I'm drawing a correlation to what you just said in your identity, because the goal of Master Talk is to give away free access to communication tools, helping people be better communicators. Is that what inspired you? Was that number three thing of this is my identity? I want to help people. I'm going to give this away for free. Is that why you started Master Talk? Like, uh, how did it start? Absolutely. And I love I love the specificity of all this. So so let's start from the beginning. So when I was in university, I used to do these things called case competitions. Mm-hmm. Think of it like professional sports, but for nerds. So while other yeah, it's the only way to explain the rest. People don't get they're like, what's a case competition? So while other guys my age were playing basketball or baseball or another sport that a normal guy, human being would play, I was more into presentations. So mm-hmm. I did them at a very high level. And for three years, four years, I presented hundreds of times and I've coached dozens of people on communication in that time. But the reason I wanted to do well in these competitions was not to start a YouTube channel. It wasn't to build a business mm-hmm. or an entrepreneur. I thought entrepreneurship was a losers who couldn't get six figure jobs. Like for me, the goal was to be a high level executive in a fortune 500. I wanted to work at McKinsey. Bain and company, BCG, mm-hmm. Deloitte, IBM. So, and that's what all of these consultants do is they do these case competitions and that's the feeder school into those jobs which i fortunately did get you know i worked as a management consultant at ibm for many years but before i started working at ibm i realized by accident total accident that i had an incredible gift to coach other people and how to speak because as students were entering the program we didn't have a communication coach i just said oh well i'm a good speaker let me figure it out and i coached so many people that I became one of the youngest professional speech coaches in the world. Because by the time I was 22, I was already coaching C-suite and VPs and above. So the idea for Master Talk, Julie, was never about building a business. It was around saying all the information that I had in my head wasn't available for free online. So Mm -hmm. I started making videos in my mom's basement three years ago. And three years later, Master Talk turned into much more than a movement. But since we're on the topic of identity. One thing I'll add, which is an extra layer of what you said my mission was, which is Mm -hmm. accurate, right? Giving people free tools. But there's actually another layer to that, which is I believe the next Elon Musk is a seven-year-old girl who can't afford me. So because I have that mission and because she can't afford me, it's absolutely vital that regardless of how much money I make in my lifetime, that my YouTube resources are the best in the world Mm -hmm. so that that next Elon Musk can still watch me, learn from me, and more importantly, become a much better communicator than Elon ever was. Yeah, that's not going to be hard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, I said that right out loud. The benchmark low. <laughs> so as I mentioned, I've watched a number of your videos and I do love them. They're very concise. I love how you start with a quote and then you tie, tie into what you're teaching and then I, I bring it back to the quote and you draw a lot of connections to things that people can understand. So taking an, a topic that, or a subject that people understand and, and drawing alliances to public speaking. I, I like that. So one of my favorite videos was titled three lessons from the UFC for presentations, which I thought was great because it said, don't be afraid to show your th- true colors. I love that. I'm, I mean, and that's another way of saying being authentic, but that is being, that's played out saying authentic is being played out. So saying, you show your true colors. The best UFC fighters have big personalities. And you went on in that video to say that the presenters should never be beige. No one should ever be beige. Can you talk a little about this and how it pertains to whether your speaking is 
I'm going after a project. I'm going into an interview. I'm on a stage. I'm giving a TED talk. How can we not be beige? Mm, love that. So the reason I said that in that video, and I would definitely reaffirm that that is still true today, <laughs> is because beige doesn't get remembered. That's the problem with beige. Mm -hmm. And if you want to do something really important with your life, with your message, with your ideas, you need to be willing to stand out. Here's another way of thinking about this. And I got this from Chris Doe. He says that the definition of value, because we always say this all the time, right, Julie? You got to add value. You got to help mm -hmm. others. But what does value actually mean? And I love Chris's definition on this, which is tell me something I don't already know. Can you tell me something? Mm -hmm. something I don't already know. So an example with me is around communication goal setting. Not many people talk about that. something I invented. So how can you focus your thought leadership on ideas that people have never said before or have framed in that way? But by doing so, you also become an anomaly because once you start sharing ideas that no one else has shared, you start to become controversial, right? But even if you'll start to get scrutiny, you'll also start to get a lot of love for people who resonate with your message. Gary Vaynerchuk's probably the best example of this. You either really love the guy, you really don't, but there's no in between with him and he yeah. still becomes successful regardless. So Gary Vaynerchuk was, this is past tense, was one of my favorite speakers for a very, very long time. And the people who listen to this podcast know, like I started following Gary Vaynerchuk when he started Wine Library TV. So this was back when he was only talking about wine and doing wine tasting. And then that got really popular. And then all of the winemakers wanted to be on his show. And that translated into VaynerMedia and what he's doing now. And I, I continued on that path with him through VaynerMedia and listening to him and buying his books. And then I realized probably during the pandemic in this year that his language around hustling and, and if you have time to watch Netflix, you're not working hard enough. And I didn't take a vacation for 17 years or whatever he says like that, that to me, I needed anti-hustle. I need to slow down and take care of myself. So it's funny that you mentioned him because for years he was my go-to person and I used to quote him in my speeches. And now I, I still appreciate him. And Gary and I are very much the same age. I think we're a year apart in age. I mean, I didn't make Forbes top 40 list. I mean, he did. So he's clearly doing something right, <laughs> you know, but I, it just looks to me that he's just killing himself. And, and it's this, um, he has this narrative of hustle and grind, hustle and grind work till you're so fucking proud of yourself. Well, I can be really proud of myself and not kill myself at the same time. So what do you think? Well, maybe the, I didn't know we were going to talk about like, what do you think about that? I've changed my opinion on him. His narrative is still the same, but for me, for where I am, it's completely off now. Mm, fascinating question. I think for me, Julie, I don't like to have strong opinions about anything because for <laughs> me, whenever you have a strong opinion on something, usually don't, we don't spend enough time exploring that. So for me, the better question that very few people ask about Gary Vaynerchuk is why does he make the decisions he does, especially in the context of our conversation mm -hmm. from a communication lens. So let's backtrack this. So when Gary V was in his early 2010s, and then, and I want people just kind of as a meta conversation, as you're listening to what I'm saying, notice how much work I've done studying the guy. So mm -hmm. you can understand what it also takes from your side on how much homework you really need to do to get to that level of communication, speaking mm -hmm. prowess that Gary has. So let's go back to this. So 2010, the guy's really overweight. 
He's running around yelling at people. And most of his knowledge is really focused on tactical information in the early, early days. This is what you need to do with Facebook and Twitter. Yes, and all that exactly. stuff. But then we realize a few years later, he actually changes the content strategy from the tactics to really focused on motivational content around don't let your mom judge you, don't let your dad judge you, you should really do this. So, but a lot of people go, oh, Brett, Gary, why do you always talk about that? But he does, people don't explore why did he make that change? Mm-hmm. What's well, simple because Gary Vaynerchuk has a quality that very few speakers have. And it's why he's one of the best in the world, in my opinion, is he has what I call extreme empathy. Yeah. He is so empathetic to his audience that even if he has 25 minutes before missing a flight that he needs to take right after his keynote, he'll stay the seven minutes to sign as many books as he can and leaves. So he's very close to the customer, the audience. And he realized by having these conversations that people weren't implementing his tactics. Mm -hmm. So why weren't people implementing his tactics? It's because they were too scared to, oh, Gary, I want to post on TikTok. Mm -hmm. I want to post on Facebook, but I'm scared what my mom will think. And that's when he realized that he needed to change his tune to appeal more to the masses. And, this, and Gary's a great lesson of what empathy really means. Because people say like, oh, you got to put yourself in other people's shoes. And I was like, well, what if you have different size shoes? I can't like fit right. my feet. But for me, empathy is we're never speaking to the person we are today. We are speaking to the person we used to be. Who is the person that we used to be? And the more we communicate to that person, the faster our influence, the faster ideas scale. So when we take of someone like Gary, even if he's really successful today, he's still speaking to the person that he either used to be at like 10 years old, probably. Mm -hmm. And people relate to that idea more because the masses, the vast volume of people are resonating with that individual. So yeah, I think think Gary is an absolute savant and a genius in what he's Mm -hmm. doing. I think his brain also works in, in a different way than mine does as far as processing information and be able, being able to verbalize that information. And so I'm going to go back to something you said uh, just before we started talking about Gary. You said something, and I wrote it down real quick, so I'm not going to get it 100% perfect. You said, have you set communication goals or do you have communication goal setting? What is that? What does that look like, having communication goals? Absolutely. So going back to the framework around picking three speakers and writing down one strength and one weakness, and we do that in our free trainings too, is basically what people do is you sit down and you just ask yourself, who are the three speakers I really admire in the world the most? And for all of us, those three people will be different. Like some people I've coached on this, they pick three, like Simon Sinek, John Maxwell, and let's say Tony. And then somebody else goes, oh, like my mom or some cook, some chef I really admire. So everyone's Mm -hmm. different. But what this does, it really helps us focus on what to do next. And this is especially important with communication because communication itself is a vague subject. What does being a great communicator even mean? Right. Does it mean saying less filler words? Does it mean speaking a bit slower? Like no one really has a clear definition. So what communication goal setting allows us to do is that allows us to customize a communication strategy for our own goals. Let's say in your case, Julie, I remember our first conversation, you said, hey, I really want to grow my speaking business. Mm -hmm. I really want to be more of a professional speaker than I already am. So you're already successful, but even more successful. So for you, all of your communication goals and the individuals that you pick, because the best way to grow is to compare yourself to other speakers, because it's just easier to look at skill difference is you pick the three speakers that you want to be in the business 
And then you just ask yourself a simple question. What are they doing well in their communication that I'm not? And that doesn't just apply with presentations. That also applies with the way that they talk to people off stage. Mm-hmm. Okay, are, are we smiling? Are you treating people really well? Gary Vee is an exceptional at this. Mm-hmm. Like he is so good at this, that just so people understand this, that he's on a call with the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. A six-year-old comes up to him who, has, who like he gets nothing from. Right. Gary can have a picture. Gary goes, hey, uh, I need to take a picture. And they yeah. like, well, that's, that's insane. No one would ever do that. So that's an example of how it's not just speaking yeah. in presentations, every area of speaking. Okay. Do you get into people's communication as far as their email newsletters or how they're going after work? Do you get into that when you work with people? Fast. I've never been asked that question. I would say it's all about prioritization. Okay. So a, a good way of keeping this simple for people, going back to empathy, right? Speaking to mm-hmm. the person we used to, because most people who are listening to this conversation don't have a single communication goal, probably haven't thought of that idea. Right. I don't think so, I did. Right, I would I speak for a living and I don't think I did. Of course, right? <laughs> so, so for most people where I would start, it's all about the order, right? Of how you tackle things. What I've found from my experience, presentation skills is your 80-20. 100%, not yours specifically, but yeah. most people's 80-20, yeah. is if you master the filler words, master the vocal tone variation, do the random word exercise that we can cover as well today, uh, every single day, practice like a jigsaw puzzle, we can go through all of this, mm-hmm. right, where you structure your presentation, you practice certain way, you start to get incredible results in one vertical of communication. And then what happens after that is you start getting better at everything because communication mm-hmm. is like a domino effect. Once you get really good at presentations, you start to get a bit better at conversations. And then you focus on conversations and then you start to get a little bit better at guesting on podcasts and then mm-hmm. on and on and on until all the dominoes just fall. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I want to go back to a couple of things you said. You said, ran- I wrote them down. Again, I'm writing down quickly while you're talking. Random, random words and jigsaw puzzles. So are those two activities you do with people? Can you tell us what that is? Absolutely. These are the easiest things that people can implement. So right now, if you're listening to this conversation, if you just implement these two ideas, you will see immediate results for your communication. Okay. So number one is the random word exercise. And I'm happy to do a demonstration if you'd like. Okay. To. But essentially what it is, is you pick random words like headphone or nail or mouse, and you give presentations out of thin air. And the reason why this present, this scale is so important is because it helps you build your resiliency as a speaker. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're an executive listening to this and you're worried about the next boardroom presentation. Mm -hmm. Well, if I force you to talk about avocados and lights and windows, when you go back to your boardroom, your boardroom presentations will be a joke. Why? Because most of the time when you're in the boardroom, you're talking about a subject matter expertise you already know. Already know, yeah. Right? So if I go, okay, talk, like for example, one of, one of my guys, he's the CEO of a massive interior design company in New York City. And he was like, what's the point of this random word exercise? And, and after he did it 50 to hundred times, his anxiety in presentations goes down mm. dramatically yeah. because he knows he can do the harder thing. So that's- That the makes point sense. I'm- that makes total sense. And then the other piece is around the, the puzzles. Yeah. So here's an easy way to think about this. I, I came up with it when I was coaching a five-year-old, one of my executives as kids, and I couldn't figure out how to help them with communication because at that age, 
they don't really know what a presentation is right. or what an introduction is. So I went through a couple of analogies in my head and I found the puzzle one made a lot of sense. So I asked the kid, I go, if you're working on a jigsaw puzzle, which piece would you start with first? So the five-year-old sits down and goes, um, probably the edges. The edges and, yeah. and I asked her why. She said, oh, because they're easier to find. Like you just kind of find those little inner little, you know, five-year-old baby boys. <laughs> yeah. And I use that analogy with executives and I'll tell you why because most of us don't start with the edges in public speaking. We generally start with the middle. So we shove a bunch of content or presentations. We get to a presentation, whether you're a speaker or an entrepreneur or an exec, and it sounds something like this. You ramble throughout the whole thing. And then the last slide you go, uh, yeah, so thanks, <laughs> right? So practicing like a jigsaw puzzle solves this problem mm -hmm. because you start with the edges. So you practice your intro 50 yeah. times not three times, not five times, 50 times. 50 seems like a big number, Julie, but it's not because your intro is like a minute or two. Same thing with the conclusion. What's a great movie with a terrible ending? Last time I checked, terrible movie, right? Yeah. So same thing, the close. And after two hours of practice, you look at yourself and go, holy crap, that was the best introduction, the best conclusion of my life. Now mm. you have the momentum to tackle the middle. But remember, like any thousand piece jigsaw puzzle, who does puzzles on their own? Nobody I know. Right. Do with friends, yeah. family, present your content to them, test different ideas. But most importantly, do not tackle the thousand piece puzzle alone. It's lonely, it's depressing, and you'll want to quit really quickly. This is one thing I want to get into because I think it does roll into it. We're talking about presenting and we're talking about the beginning, the middle and the end, which gets me to my question as it pertains to what is the difference between content and delivery? Because you can turn amazing content into a shitty presentation, or you can take really benign information and make a great presentation out of it. So what do you see the difference is and how can people craft whatever they're doing, whatever their content is to be rememberable? <laughs> is that a word? Memorable? I think so. I'll I'm, take it. I'll hey take Siri, it. is it rememberable a word? Oh, she just came on. Shit. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> she said sorry. <laughs> that was funny. Anyways, uh, absolutely. So great question, right? Where where should we put our focus? How yeah. what's the difference between the two? How do we go about this? So I always like to use a simple example when this question comes up. Okay. Let's go back to high school. Yeah. So for you, maybe five, 10 years ago. Yeah, about that. Yeah, I'm like five, 10. Right. So when we go back to high school and we think about all of the teachers we had, all the information, the question mm -hmm. is very simple. How much do we remember from high school? Oh, another way of putting it? I don't really know about you, but you know, my high school teachers were great human beings, but I don't yeah. really remember much from yeah. the history classes to the math classes. But why is that? Because the content's pretty good. I mean, these people have master's degrees, yeah. bachelor's, really well-educated, right? But the opposite is, is a bit different in the sense that when we think back to our best speakers, the best people that we remember, the absolute king. So let's say we take Tony Robbins, whatever, whoever your favorite speaker mm -hmm. And I ask you to tell me something you remember. You'll generally give me one, two key ideas. An yep. example with Tony is the secret to living is giving. 
It's important to be grateful every day. Trade your expectations with appreciation, let's say. But even with the best communicators on planet Earth, you won't remember their entire speech. Nope. Unless you do your homework, like you clearly did in this episode. Right? <laughs> or else you won't remember. You'll remember like one, two key ideas from my videos, right. let's say. But you'll remember everything because it's the nature of human beings. <laughs> it's a lot of information. So what's the conclusion? The conclusion is this. Delivery is everything provided that the little information you have to share is valuable enough to share. Okay, let me repeat that again. What's the conclusion? The conclusion is delivery is everything. And by everything, I mean where you should be spending most of your time on, provided that your content is worth sharing at the very minimum. So obviously that's going to change based on the setting that you're in and based on the way that you're sharing that, that message. But generally speaking, where most people should be spending their time is on fixing their delivery, not their content. Do you think we're sharing too much content? Like we're trying to pack too much stuff in? I would say almost all the time. And the reason is because, especially in the corporate setting, where all of your presentations are different, all of your presentations are stressful, and all of your presentations are tied to a punishment, where you're never presenting for fun at work. It's very rare. You have to drive a result for the team. In that very stressful context, you're clamoring presentations together versus spending the time thoughtfully to ask your audience, what would you change? What's different? How can we make this better? You don't have the time to do that versus where we see speakers on the professional circuit. Why are they so exceptional? Because they give very small amount of talks. They're usually speaking on one, two subjects, yeah. and they have a lot more time to be thoughtful about how they share those one, two topics. They're not better than us. It's just the way that they're speaking, the way that they're practicing, the systems that they're using are completely different than people in, let's say, a boardroom. So a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are in the architecture, engineering, construction industry. And so when we give presentations... A lot of the times we're giving presentations to win awards, to win the design of a building, a museum, a, a college and university building, or for the construction of that building. So it is never one person going after that project. It's always three or four people from a team presenting together. What are your best tactics to present as a group to a group? Mm, great question. So small follow-up question that I'll answer. It's an easy one. Don't worry. Yeah. Is there generally a Q&A period of those types of award-winning presentations or is it just the presentation? No, there's usually um, at the end, there's usually time for whoever is the selection committee who is selecting whoever's going to win this job to ask questions of the team. Okay. Awesome. Let's just say 10, 15 minutes Q&A. Yeah, I would say so. It's usually, so if you're given an hour, it's usually five minutes of introductions, 40 minutes of presentation, and then 15 minutes of question and answer. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. So here's a couple of tips that, that I use for people like that, that I coach at the highest level, is an exercise I call question drills. So question drills, in a nutshell, is where we drill the team on so many questions they can, let's say in the context of what you're saying, which is a construction project, their design project, mm -hmm. their idea, until there's no more questions left. So literally what I would do is they would all sit down in the room and you don't have to do this with the coach, only if you can afford it. You can do this with like friends and family, mm -hmm. but make sure those friends and family are the most vicious people in your network. Like not like a goody two shoes, like, oh, like that was great. No, the role of the question drill is really to make sure to poke holes in what you're saying. That's the, uh, that's the objective. Okay. But the, the reason this is such a powerful exercise 
is after a few year, hours, and you know, I, I don't make this sound like dangerous. And it, it make it fun. Bring pizza or your favorite food and, and make it exciting. Because that's what I did when I was in university. And I was presenting it against other teams. Is ask the questions, a bunch of them, and then you'll find a lot of them you don't have answers to. Write down mm-hmm. the ones you don't have answers to. And then have another hour-long conversation with the person who asked you the question and say, if you were to answer this question for me, how would you answer it? And then they give you ideas. They go, actually, Julie, I would answer it this way. Yeah. And then you go, that's good. And let me give you a really killer tip is what the best teams do is every question is a slide in the appendix. Okay, let me repeat that again. Mm-hmm. Every answer to the question, to each question you come up with, especially in the context of what you're doing, because that's very high impact. You really want to win the award. It's a big deal. So for that type of presentation, I'm giving the extra layer of feedback which is make a slide on each question and the answer. I'll tell you why. Team A walks in, okay, for the selection committee. They're there. They haven't really practiced their communication skills. Very architecture engineer, so they're a little bit stressed. These are sales uh, people who are crushing presentations. They're probably the people who designed the the blueprint. So they're going in. They're a bit nervous. Then they get into Q&A. So then somebody raises their hand in the selection committee and goes, Okay, guys, what, what was the, and gals, what was the criteria that you used and what style of writing did you mm-hmm. use to design this project? I don't know. I don't know what they get asked in that industry. So let's, <laughs> let's do it. So, and then the person who's sitting there goes, just looks awkwardly at the other teams and goes, is it me? Right, and they, right. And then they answer it. Whereas what team B does is they walk in and then the same thing, selection committee goes, okay, what criteria did you use to build your blueprint? And then Josh, let's say, goes, hey, Ian, could you open slide 184, please? Yeah. And then the slide has the answer, and then you explain the answer. Do you say we anticipated this question? Like, oh, we anticipate? No. Oh, you just. Nah, that sounds a little bit. uh, uh, That's probably, that's a great follow-up. I would say it's a bit bit too too much. But But I definitely think just sharing that slide already implies that you've done your homework. So same thing like this. For example, you don't need to tell me that you've done a lot of homework. It's obvious in the way you're asking questions. Right. It's obvious because you're going at three already when you said three languages, uh, sorry, three languages I speak and eight languages I can carry out yeah. and immediately this is going to be a high tier <laughs> podcast interview. Right? What is, we hear a lot about the power of storytelling. Do you coach people on how to use stories with how they communicate? And is that hard for people to agree to describe what they're trying to get across or teach with it in, in the format of a story? Absolutely. Great question. So I do coach storytelling, but I have a very different opinion on it than most people in the industry. So I'll just give that, especially in the context of your audience, architecture, engineering, those types of construction. Mm -hmm. For everyone in that industry, I would say storytelling is a waste of your time. I know that's a very hard opinion and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Okay. The reason is because for most of the people I've coached in that industry, the challenge is not storytelling. There's a bigger problem they need to solve, which is foundations. Okay. Foundations means filler words, ums and ahs, right? Vocal tone variety. If you have the best story in the world, but you have the weakest foundation, the building will fall. Okay. Right. Like in construction, same yeah. analogy here. One thing I want to do on a side note is notice how empathetic I am to the audience. I really want people to pay attention to the language I'm using. Notice mm-hmm. I, I immediately customized what I was saying the second that Julie said that was the audience. That's right. what going back to Gary Vee, it's the key of being empathetic. But going back to this, back to this idea, 
you need to focus on mastering foundations first. Why? Because storytelling is a super vague topic. What does storytelling even mean? Does it mean you have to watch Disney movies all day and take notes? And then like it just it never lands on my clients when I coach them. Yeah. We have to master the fundamentals. And then once the fundamentals are mastered, then you could talk about how exciting your building project is. But now you have the right fundamentals to pitch your service. But having said that, for let's say 10%, 15% of the audience who are advanced, who already have the right fundamentals, the quick advice I would give on storytelling is always understand that a story needs to lead to an outcome. So before you tell the story, you need to figure out what is your outcome first. So let's say in the context of what you do as a professional speaker, let's say I was coaching one-on-one, this is a coaching call. I would say, okay, Julie, out of everything that you have in your head, what are the top three outcomes and lessons you want to drive in your keynote? And then you'll say A, B, and C. Mm -hmm. So then from, let's say A is never give up, super simple. Mm -hmm. So now what you want to do with never give up is now you want to test out different stories that help prove the outcome. Okay. So you'll try, okay, story one, this happened to me in my personal life. Story two, this happened to me in my life. Story three, and then you test, you actually try each one, and then you see what lands the most on your audience, and that's how you final list that story. Okay. Right? So I'll give you an example with me. One of the most common stories I tell, but let's start with the outcome first, is to convince every human being who's listening to me at any time in any place that they can master communication too, and not just me, but everyone who's listening to me. So how do I convince people of that? I've tried different stories, but the one that has worked the best is my own personal story. You know, when I was five years old, I grew up in Montreal, city you know well. Mm-hmm. Montreal, you need to know how to speak French. If you know how to speak French, you're going to suck. Like you're not going to be able to be successful. And my whole life, I went to French school. That's how I learned French. But it was horrible as an experience because every time I presented in class, not only was I uncomfortable with presentations, I didn't know the language. Mm-hmm. So I'd walk up and go, eh, bonjour. So when people <laughs> hear that story, it drives the outcome that I want. It's not just funny, which it is. Mm-hmm. Thank- thankfully, you laughed. <laughs> thanks for the laugh. Good. Like, thanks for that. <laughs> but notice how it also drives the outcome, which is, oh, wait a second. This guy could mm-hmm. like, get really good at communication. I can't too. So my, so my story is successful because the outcome is successful. Mm -hmm. So that's how you want to think about it. So let's get into how you work with people. And if people are interested in working with you, how they can get in touch with you. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say the easiest way to get in touch, check out the YouTube channel. Master Talk has a lot of my thought leadership and I do my best to share everything I'm sharing here on that channel as Mm -hmm. well. So be sure to check that out. And if you're interested in coaching, I would say visit my website, rockstarcommunicator.com and attend one of my free trainings. You know, my philosophy is very simple. Um, I'm not, I'm not big on selling people coaching services. For me, it's all about delivering the value first. So if you're someone who wants communication, go to the free training. I'd coach a lot of people for free on that call. Mm -hmm. Then if you're interested in more, then we'll have that discussion. And you do those calls about once, once a month. Is that right? Yeah. Once every two weeks to a month. Okay. Okay. Great. And I can put all of that, uh, links to all of that in the show notes, but I start with the YouTube channel. Another one of my favorite videos was how to present or how to, how to be a presenter, like the rock or something. <laughs> it, yeah. I mean, it's just very relatable the way you are drawing th- things people know into professional speaking. And you're like, oh yeah, I get it. Okay. I get it. I see the similarity there. So thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Julie. You did such a fantastic job. Thanks okay. for an awesome interview. Yeah. I've listened to this episode a couple of times through the editing process. 
And the entire time I was listening, I kept saying to myself, damn, he is really good at communicating. Like, duh, I get it. He created Master Talk, but still. I was so taken with how smoothly he articulated his points and his ideas. I guess his shit works too. This was a long conversation and we covered a lot of ground. So I'm just going to recap a couple of things that really struck me. The first being that we should be creating communication goals. I've never thought of doing this. We set goals for lots of other things in our lives. Exercise, eating healthy, long-term projects, whatever. But I've never thought about setting communication goals and what that would even mean and look like. It forces you to think about communication in a much more strategic way, not just something that is part of our everyday life that we do off the cuff. I wonder how much better we would be at asking for what we want communicating ideas, delegating, initiating interesting conversations, if we knew exactly why we were talking and what the goal of our words should be. I also really liked our conversation around not being beige. Surprise, surprise. I think most people think they have to work to fit in. But if you want to be remembered, you need to show what makes you different. You have to maybe work to not fit in. Remember, you're unique just like everybody else. Don't be intimidated by your uniqueness. Embrace it. Enter that meeting with the swagger of an AFC fighter. Just make sure you have the communication tools to back it up. Okay. On to the cocktail of the week, which has absolutely no clever tie-in to the episode. I tried, I really tried, but I just couldn't do it. But it is sugaring season in Vermont right now, so I wanted to make a cocktail that incorporated pure maple syrup something that I always have jugs of in the house. So I found a cocktail named the Tootsie Roll. Now, before I get to the cocktail, did you know that the Tootsie Rolls have been made in Chicago since 1907 and was the first American penny candy to be individually wrapped? And I absolutely love Tootsie Rolls. So when I saw this super simple recipe, I said, she's the one. Here's what you're going to need. Two ounces of Bacardi eight-year-old rum. I actually didn't have Bacardi 8-year-old rum, but I had another different aged rum, so that's what I used. You're going to need just shy of half an ounce of pure maple syrup. None of that log cabin brown corn syrup shit, okay? Pure maple syrup. And about six drops of chocolate bitters. Stir all ingredients together with ice in a cocktail glass, then strain into a coupe glass. You can garnish with a Luxardo cherry if you'd like. The recipe called for it. All right, friends. That's all for today. If you like what you heard, please leave a review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. It really makes a big difference in helping others find the podcast. Also, please remember to share the podcast so it helps reach a larger audience. Until next week, cheers. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a tip. And remember, you can unapologetically be who you authentically are and still be wildly successful. That's a fact. See you next week on This Shit Works.